0: Good evening, everyone. Um, On behalf of BCRW and the wider Barnard community, I'd like to welcome you all to the second in their newly inaugurated salon season. And I'm going to welcome you and introduce this Uh, second salon uh, salon event with a confession, and that confession is the fact that I am incredibly attracted to the idea of a salon. (laughs)
1: Um,
0: I'm incredibly attracted to the sexiness of that sound of the (laughs) salon and that we are all participating in a salon on a university campus. And it's a kind of sexiness that is associated with the concept of a salon that's engendered by associations that we have with the idea of a salon as a gathering of people people assembled by an inspiring host, that would be you, Elizabeth, uh, held partly to amuse, but partly to extend their knowledge and inspire the imagination of the participants through conversation. And the emphasis here is truly on conversation. The explicit and assumed aim of a salon is both pleasure and at the same time, intellectual stimulation. I am going to assure you right now, right up front, that with this particular lineup of participants, that we are unlikely to disappoint you in either the pleasure or the intellectual stimulation. Um, This second salon will be a conversation on the most recent published work of Carla F.C. Holloway, Private Bodies, Public Texts, Race, Gender, and a Cultural Bioethics. We're very honored to welcome her to Barnard to engage some of the extremely provocative ideas about the public and the private and the stakes of raced and gendered bodies, subjects, and identities in the fields of genomics, bioethics, and the law. Holloway's text asks us to consider the transposition that occurs between the public and the private in relation to the bodies of minorities and women, and to consider the modes of accountability that accrue to these subjects in narrative strategies that seek to recover their humanity through a cultural bioethics that places narrative at the center of political analysis. Juxtaposing a person with the person, she asks us to take seriously the narratives that humanize certain individuals and the role of science, medicine, and the law therein. Parsing legal theorist Jed Rubenfeld, Holloway writes, the person is one who operates in a social context and in the public domain. A person is the one who is inviolable, simply human. How do, this is the question that she poses, how do the private person's acts become not merely human but vulnerable to public notice? Holloway continues, a cultural ethics does not merely notice the ethical lapses that yield a case narrative about elderly Jewish nursing home residents whom American researchers inject with live cancer cells in an experiment on immune system response, or minority children and their families from Baltimore who were assigned to public housing known to be infested with dangerous levels of lead A cultural ethics considers what it is about the constitution of those subjects and patterns and cultures of medicine that makes it possible, and this is more important, even predictable to repeat certain kinds of ethical failure. Holloway's text urges us to engage the structures that intentionally produce ethical failures and challenges us to to forms of ethical practice that intervene in producing the multiplicity of failure. Carla F.C. Holloway is James Duke Professor of English and Professor of Law at Duke University. She holds appointments in two interdisciplinary programs, women's studies and African and African American studies. Her research and teaching focus on African-American cultural studies, biocultural studies, ethics, and law. Professor Holloway is the author of four essays, four, uh, four books of essays and eight books, and she is currently reworking, working on a book titled Legal Fictions, Constituting Race, Composing Literature. She's recipient of national awards and foundation fellowships recognizing her scholarship and most recently uh, the Rockefeller Foundation's Bellasio Residency Fellowship and the Sheila Biddle Ford Foundation Fellowship at Harvard University's Du Bois Institute. And she adds, cryptically, <laughs> word has it that she is also working on a novel, Shh. though there is no independent confirmation of this audacious <laughs> speculation.
2: In other words, a publisher. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Joining her in this dialogue or this conversation are four feminist scholars here from our own Barner Columbia community. Far Yasmin Griffin is professor of English and Comparative Literature at Columbia University. She's the recipient of numerous honors and awards for her teaching and fellowship. And she's the author of Who Set You Flowin'? The African-American Migration Narrative. Um, as well as co-editor of Stranger in the Village, Two Centuries of African-American Travel Writing and editor of Beloved Sisters and Loving Friends, Letters from Addie Brown and Rebecca Primus. Her most recent book, If You Can't Be Free, Be a Mystery, In Search of Billy Holiday was published in 2001 by Free Press. Saidiya Hartman is Professor of English and Comparative Literature and the Director of the Institute for Research on Women and Gender at Columbia University. A past Fulbright, Rockefeller, Whitney Oaks, and University of California President's Fellow, Saidiya is the author of Scenes of Subjection, Terror, Slavery, and Self-Making in Nineteenth-Century America and Lose Your Mother, A Journey Along the Atlantic Slave Route. Rebecca Jordan Young is a sociomedical scientist whose research includes social epidemiological studies of HIV and AIDS and evaluation of biological work on sex, gender, and sexuality. Her book, Brainstorm, the Flaws in the Science of Sex Differences, is a comprehensive critical analysis of research purporting to demonstrate that hormone exposure in utero hardwire the brain in utero hardwire the brain to be either masculine or feminine in sexuality, skills, and interests. And finally, Alondra Nelson is Associate Professor of Sociology and uh, an affiliate of the Institute for Research on Women and Gender at Columbia University. Professor Nelson's research focuses on how science and its applications shape the social world, including aspects of personal identification, racial formation, and collective action. She explores the ways in which social groups challenge, engage, and in some instances, adopt and mobilize conceptions of race, ethnicity, and gender, deriving from scientific and technical domains. Professor Nelson is author of the most recently published, Body and Soul, The Black Panther Party, and the Fight Against Medical Discrimination. Honoring the informality and the intimacy of a conversation that is supposed to take place in this salon to both stimulate, and to excite you, um, we're going to proceed by giving each person about 10 minutes to present a response, comments, and questions to Professor Holloway's work, followed by a response by Professor Holloway, and then we're gonna open it up to a larger conversation with the audience. We're going to begin, we're going to go in the, in the, uh, the order set out um, in the, on the poster, and start with Farah, then go to Saidiya, followed by Beck, and then Alondra Nelson,
3: Farah? Thank you. Um, I should say that I come to Private Body's public text, Race, Gender, and Bioethics, as a longtime reader and admirer of what I call the collected works of Carla Holloway. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I want to talk about it in, this, in that way. Uh, for in reading uh, this most recent text, I see a set of ongoing um, interests, concerns, questions, a kind of intellectual unfolding so to speak, uh, one that yields insight, critical engagement, recognition, and challenges for a reader who accepts the invitation they collectively provide. One sees in this body of work a nurturing, a building, a bringing into being of a set of ideas and unfolding one unto the other like the blossoming of a rose. From the first, a concern with the literary, with literature, with fiction and language through the disciplinary lens of literary studies and linguistics. A concern with the meaning of language, with language in context. Speaking of entozake Shange in the opening pages of an early work, Moorings and Metaphors, Figures of Culture and Gender in Black Women's Literature, I think from 1991, I don't remember. Um, Carla writes, quote, the history within her words and their connection to gendered and cultural sources are as important as an emphasis. For Holloway, here, is interested in black women writers, quote, return to the word as a generative source, a source of textual power that both structures story and absorbs its cultural legacy. And here, in the more recent work, Private Bodies, she returns us to that call to be attentive to the history, not only of, but in our words, the words that build the languages of medicine, law, science, fiction. She asks, does a new science disregard the paradigms and start anew? Is this ever possible when the history in our words is linguistically inescapable," end quote. So here, on the pages of the new book, I encounter Carla the linguist, who helped teach me how to read black women's fiction, and here uses those tools to read a new set of texts, ones with profound implications. Here, she reminds us that the history embedded in words and in identities does not disappear. And as such, she calls for attention to intersectionality, insists that concerns about social justice, about historical patterns, accompany all calls for scientific efficiency. The turn to ethics here is not new either. Codes of Conduct, Race, Ethics, and the Color of Character, where she writes, quote, in one critical sense, racialized language that has articulated legislated and enforce policies and processes that have institutionalized themselves by reifying the lie of biological referent. In this regimented space, race identifies what out of a biologize, I can never say that, (laughs) (laughs) biologize, (laughs) biologize, she's been helping me since we were graduate students, (laughs) helping me say my words properly. (laughs) A history of cultural conflict has been rendered true and actual based on a perversion of science." It seems to me that this sentence articulates a concern that still animates the present work and its search for, for what Carla calls a cultural ethics and its challenge to bioethics, its reminder of the discursive construction of subjects, of unethical medical procedures and experimentation, over whom private issues of reproduction and death and dying become public. And of course, this last calls to mind one of the most compelling of the collected works of Carla Holloway, passed on African-American mourning stories, a multi-generic exploration of myth, ritual, history, politics of black death and dying, to which she returns in the last chapter of Private Bodies, that ask us that poignant and powerful question, quote, when do the voices of the dying matter? And here I have to say that as we gather, I can't help but think about how much this question resonates tonight as hundreds around the country march for justice for Trayvon Martin, whose dying voice we long to hear beyond the haunting cries for help. Throughout. Carla never abandons the literary, as she certainly would have been justified in doing here in a book about law and medical discourse and bioethics. And I'm so glad she does not. Within the text, the literary provides a space to which I constantly return, a space of the imagination that helps shape an understanding of the issues at hand. She writes, fiction encourages our consideration of prescriptives in ways that our personal experience or narrowed frames of the case study might not." quote. So one question that I have for Carla is how do the languages and concerns of law and science and the intersection between them, how do these shape the literary, if at all? I see in private bodies a culmination of the concerns that have driven much of Carla's early work with major and important differences. One, an engagement with the languages and discourses of law, medicine, science, and bioethics. Two, a reading of a series of literary texts that are not only by nor about black authors. This book constitutes an expansion, if that's possible, of the terrain upon which she turns her critical gaze. Race and gender are still of central importance, but here they provide a lens through which to read these other social texts, which often fail to identify the significance, downright necessity, of either race or gender to their own construction. Because students are so well-trained, and I'm thinking of graduate students, but not only graduate students, are so well-trained to take books apart to go for the jugular in a reading practice that we call critical, I often try to counter that or at least balance it by asking what did the author have to know to write this book? What critical, disciplinary, writing tools and materials were needed to make this book? This is the question that drives my reading of Carla's, Carla's work. The effort. To answer it, in this case, overwhelms and frequently frustrated my own desire for breadth and depth, as she demonstrates it, for historical grounding and theoretical acumen, for skilled close reading and philosophical inquiry, for the interdisciplinarity at which she is so adept. Bioethics, genomics, tort law, yells the reader Farah at the writer Carla. I'm not ready for this. And then on reading, I realize that the writer Carla has taught me how to read what she offers here. She's taught me to foreground attention to the language, to the meanings and histories of the words we use, to the bodies and the multiplicities therein. Thank you.
4: So I apologize, because I forgot my glasses. So I'm trying to read my questions through Tina's glasses. So if if I I stumble. um, Yeah. um, But I just wanted to, um, you know, echo uh, Farah's uh, description of the complexity of this book, which in some sense is very disarming, because the prose is very lucid. um, But it's actually um, incredibly dense and intellectually broad, and I found myself, because of that, sharing Farah's response, wait, I thought I knew law, (laughs) Um, and I knew that Beck and Alondra would, um, you know, address the genomics part of it, so I'm going to actually talk about something that I don't talk about that much, which is the literary. um, And I'm basically raising... uh, more questions than I expect Carla to answer here, but to provoke our conversation afterwards. Um, Private bodies, public texts, asks us to consider literature as a resource in thinking about matters of bioethics, social justice, and the elusive boundary between private bodies and public selves. The capacity of literature to wrestle with issues of justice and vulnerability resides in its seeming lack or deficiency. That is, in the incomplete rationalization of literature, its unwieldiness and its disregard for achieving instrumental ends. The value of literary narrative, unlike the narrative crafted by bioethics in the effort to find solutions to problems, doesn't reside in its ability to fix anything or provide definitive answers to troubling social questions. The refusal to translate the complex assemblage of the social into a rational plan or an operating strategy is one of the ways that literature helps us grapple with the messy entanglements of history, power, and institutions. In short, the work of the literary refuses to avoid difficult matter. Literature offers a richer context for elaborating personhood than do legal or medical narratives. And here I'm kind of restating some of the major points that Carla has made. Literature in Holloway's words return the bodies under discussion to full personhood rather than rendering them as essentialized subjects. Fiction is an appropriate and richly textured source for the fully human. How do fictional characters or literary narratives enable this robust conception of personhood? What accounts for the restorative or redressive capacity of fiction? Wei Chi describes the illogic of literature as a lapse in its ability to instrumentalize its narrative universe, to make that universe serve one particular end. That lapse of unseemly, unseemliness is perhaps most notable in the novel's radius of pertinence, which linking each episode to yet another antecedent or adjacent episode, making it contingent upon yet another eventuality must attest at every turn to the infinitude of causal horizons and the infinitude of perceptual limits. Along similar line, Holloway writes, fiction reminds us that despite the absolutely appropriate interest of law, ethics, and medicine in discovering a solution, resolutions are often happenstance and sometimes not very neat. Fiction troubles bioethics search for a solution, especially one focused on the individual case and the patient's story. The central question Holloway broaches is, how might fictional narratives, which are absolutely open to complex and even contradictory meanings, assist an ethicist in discovering a stable solution to a medical dilemma? The narratives in bioethics, like those in law, presume autonomous, willful private selves who are not inscribed by institutional histories of racism, subordination, and impaired citizenship, or even marked by social categories. The self is marked only in the exceptional instance of medical vulnerability. What private bodies, public text succeeds in. Con- in contextualizing these vulnerable bodies within a larger category of social risk and excess death. Holloway suggests that the novel's deployment and fashioning of subjectivity escapes the limits and closures of narrative medicine. For Holloway, the critical labor of the literary illuminates the ways in which privacy and identity are determined by social histories of race and gender. In a deft reading of the stories Bloodchild by Octavia Butler and Desiree by Kate Chopin, Holloway interprets these stories as narratives about the ethical dilemma of agency, autonomy, and privacy. Does literature lack instrumentality or does its instrumentality reside elsewhere, that is, in providing an emotional prosthesis whereby fictional characters provide us with a way of dealing with the world? private body's public text does not set out to answer why we care about characters or the ethical importance of fiction. In fact, it argues that the novel's most important lesson for ethics is one reached through the fictional device of perspective that allows, even encourages, an ethicist to confront the complexities of autonomy. If I understand this correctly, Holloway is saying that what is most important about literature is not that it facilitates identification with those who are like us, but rather enables a possibility of being in relation to others defined by neither autonomy nor powerlessness, but an intersubjective condition that troubles the boundary between self and other, autonomy and interdependence, action and submission. In reading My Sister's Keeper, Holloway notes that the novel's conclusion implies that autonomy may not be any more achievable within the institution of the family than it is within the institutional structures of medicine. Here, I want to press Carla about the implications of this suggestion. Does literature pose a model of ethical practice or social justice not predicated upon autonomous selves? How does it attend to private identities that are always already public? is the transport afforded by the literary, which we might think of as intersubjectivity, how does this transport, is it enabled by the dispossessive force of the literary encounter? And by that I mean um, an account of the self that requires us to hand over our story to another. um, Or the details... um, of our experience that were shared with us by another so that we may craft a story of the self. And here I think of those words from Their Eyes Were Watching God, when Janie says about Phoebe, my tongue in my friend's mouth. So we have both a kind of a dispossession of self and autonomy that is precisely the condition for a making of self and an engagement with other. Um, and literature also seems to afford the possibility of looking at the world through eyes other than our own. What is the relationship between cultural ethics and the literary? How do literary texts provide a method for engaging the slippery constitution of subjectivity? And the second part of my um, my remarks concern cultural ethics. Um, uh, I, Tina in her Remarks noted that for Carla, and I thought it was a, a really important um, the way in which she stated it. That basically, by attending to cultural ethics, we become a, a way um, aware of the way in which a kind of a limited um, vision of the social continues to produce certain forms of ethical failure. Um, cultural ethics, um, according to Holloway, insist on cultural complexity as the origin of the subject, acknowledges that ethical inquiry is not empty of social histories, and considers the way in which narrative is constituted by a disciplinary field. And again, I would say something that's kind of paradoxical or interesting and complicated about the text is that on one hand, um, there's a kind of privileging of the critical labor of the literary as individual Hmm. stories and their value are contested. In some sense, we think of the novel as being precisely the vehicle for the individual story. But the way Holloway poses that question actually challenges our understanding of that. For Holloway, cultural ethics revises the limits of bioethics by considering histories of institutional practice, individual narratives, with, by placing individual narratives within the context of collective group history and attending to the structural violence of racism in defining vulnerable bodies and establishing a vertical order of life. Cultural ethics, quote, places narratives of race and gender directly into the substantive issues of bioethics contemporary interests. The emphasis on narrative and bioethics, according to Holloway, reifies the individual life as it is engendered by medical case history. The objectification of a patient's story fails to give constitutive weight to the cultural and historical context of experience." End of quote. The insufficiency of this approach is demonstrated over the course of Holloway's book, and she reframes the canonical stories of bioethics and provides a richly textured account of the production of vulnerable lives and disposable populations. Intersectional analysis of race and gender is key to Holloway's critical engagement with bioethics and narrative medicine. um, cultural bioethics insist on a generative perspective that establishes ethical paradigms as fully entangled in identitarian presumptions. While engaging issues of reproduction, genomics, clinical trials on death and dying, each of the chapters contend with the central question, what is it about race and gender that goes beyond liberal personhood and that controls how identities, rather than persons, interact with the public sphere? The history of slavery, dispossession, and impaired citizenship are framed by the category identity. For example, Holloway writes, vulnerable refers to patients who are exploitable with regard to medical abuses that are attached to the social basis regarding identity. Simply put, this is a way of describing racism. Yet something more is at stake for Holloway, which in part accounts for her attachment to the category identity. I believe it concerns the different modes of elaborating the subject in literature versus bioethics, yet I would like her to address more directly the emphasis on identity and the implications of this for issues of racial justice. Is the need of cultural ethics simply a way of asserting that bioethics needs to contend with racism or a way of emphasizing which bodies have been and continue to be vulnerable or is it about the failure of bioethics to account for its own predication of the subject and its definition of narrative, or its inability to address a predictable pattern of flawed medical experimentation? Here I might suggest that rather than consider what is it about race and gender that trouble liberal narratives of personhood, Holloway considered the exclusions constitutive of liberalism and the long array of liberalism's other. And and that's kind of rhetorical, because I know Holloway already knows this. So again, I'm trying to ask her, like, okay, why is she speaking about these issues in the terms in which she's chosen to speak of them here and not in this other vocabulary? So I would just like you to spell out the the implications of that. Um, Simply put, uh, is it difficult to imagine the unencumbered individual or autonomous subject as black, um, or rather, that i um, so sorry, okay, simply put, is it difficult to imagine the unencumbered individual or autonomous subject as black, or rather is it that structural dispossession and negation are constitutive of blackness, and this enduring precarity and vulnerability of black life has a long history as the other of the imperial human. So what are the stakes in the recovery of the self and Holloway's um, project? Um, the last chapter, immortality in culture, addresses the issues of death and dying, more specifically death as the inevitability of a culturally predetermined and racialized outcome. Um, When reading um, Ernest Gaines, A Lesson Before Dying and um, the murder deaths at Memorial Hospital during Hurricane Katrina, and here I would like to consider Holloway's own investment in a discourse of liberal autonomy and personhood. Um, As she writes about Jefferson, the protagonist of Gaines's novel, A Wrongfully Convicted Black Man Sentenced to Death, she writes, Jefferson uses words to reclaim his humanity. A lesson before um, dying is about, quote, Jefferson's autonomy and his ownership of the narrative act. Um, Is it about autonomy or rather the forms of liberatory practice that occur even in the space of death? The prisoner on death row is the ultimate conscript. Does he escape the law's dehumanization or simply fashion a self in the space of death? Can personhood be achieved through narration? Does a narrative of transformation presuppose that the reanimation of the civilly dead require our fidelity to the language of man? A lesson retells, quote, how a convicted criminal became a man in part because of the autonomy he claimed as his own narrator. Is the model of autonomy troubled throughout the book, here reinscribed as ideal and as the telos of transformation? While Holloway notes the extraordinary price Jefferson was required to pay for a private and humane autonomy. I still would like to ask what other terms we might employ or invoke to describe what the act of narration affords for the vulnerable and those likely to experience premature death. Um, After reading Gaines's novelistic account um, of a culturally determined death, Holloway asked again, what might bioethics learn from a single patient story? or the individual narratives that have been recently heralded as the synchron of medical ethics. The single patient's narrative is posed in relation to a narrative of black death and dying, which is a viable social construct. And here again, we have the individual narrative versus this collective narrative of death and dying. As Holloway writes, the principle of justice draws out our attention to matters of death and dying when social justice and inequity yield excess mortality, and vulnerable populations. Holloway then provides us with a searing account of black death, which points to the power of the individual story. Not a case study translated into a narrative, but a personal testimony that functions as a collective utterance. And here is the story of a patient's daughter, Wilda Fay Sims McManus's daughter, um, that gives sustained attention to the forecasting of national emergencies and excess mortality, I quote. um, And this is after um, she's forced to abandon her mother in the hospital. Um, She says, I woke my mother up, and I told her that I had to leave. And I told her that it was okay to go on and to be with Jesus. And she understood me because she cried. First she screamed, and then she cried. And I said, Mama, do you understand? And she said, yes. And then she asked me to sing one more time, and I did it. And everyone was crying, and then I left. And my last page, um, uh, okay. Um, and uh, I lost my last page. But uh, uh, after this, is just to so kind you. of say that um, these are the kind of incredibly important stories that Holloway um, has woven together in this text that is constantly reminding us about the kind of the life-giving and life. Um, negating power of
2: stories. Good. I just make one comment for um, the auditors that Wilda um, McManus died in Memorial um, Medical um, Center during Hurricane Katrina. She was one of the abandoned patients who was abandoned there. Yeah. So that was the context yeah. for that.
5: Due to my disciplinary background as a socio-medical scientist I um, had the I hope I can be excused for being a a newcomer to Carl Holloway's writing and it was a thrilling uh, experience it's really thrilling to be part of this conversation and I find um, immediately that this is a book that I can and will use and um, so I'm I'm very excited about a number of ways to engage with it I want to just quickly um, give for you guys as a reminder, I'm assuming that some of you, maybe many of you haven't read the text, so I'm going to give a few brief um, quotes from the text to to ground the project a little bit. Um, Very early in the introduction, Professor Holloway writes, quote, the most focused consideration of this book is directed toward what it is about race and gender that goes beyond liberal personhood and that controls how identities, rather than persons interact with the public sphere. Um, broadly she also writes, the argument of private bodies public texts is that narratives, socializing stories that are attached to all women and to blacks of both genders have an inordinate control over the potential for private personhood, Unquote. The right to privacy, and quote again, quote, has a public history that absolutely renders it a socially selective privilege. In other words, um, for women and black Americans in particular, and I quote again, some corporeal feature is always and already vulnerable to public attention as an identity that stands in the place of private personhood. She then asks, um, you know, ultimately the book aims at uh, elaborating or reworking bioethics to demand a consistent consideration of the workings of identity, specifically racial and gender identity, also sometimes sexuality, and in a variety of places, um, class, for uh, lack of a a better cohesive term, um, within bioethics, and in particular, I'll say bioethics um, has a number of, of structured principles that are articulated that Um, are have slight variations but uh, often the core principles are defined as autonomy justice and beneficence or non-maleficence and sorry and um we're just amening. amenning okay (laughs) good so (laughs) the question is how are bioethical narratives constructed such that analyses of any situation in terms of these core principles of autonomy justice and beneficence actually elide the specific effect of subjects locations within social structures and particular social histories which attach to identities. Um, And so uh, attention to identities can help us to understand the ways in which um, bioethics treatment of bodies and individual persons will generate what Holloway forcefully and accurately calls predictable ethical failures. And as I was, I was reading this, I immediately connected it to a new project that I'm doing. And I actually wanna just briefly read to you some aspects of that case study as a way to illuminate the kinds of predictable failures that are illustrated in the book. Um, very recently, uh, more than a decade after the International Olympic Committee and the International oh. Association of Athletics Uh, federations had abandoned routine sex testing, these organizations announced new policies for so-called gender verification of female athletes. This change came in response to the case case of Castor Semenya, the South African runner whose spectacular win and powerful physique fueled an international debate over her sex and hence her legitimacy to compete as female in the absence of a fair and transparent policy for how to determine her eligibility, the IAAF, the, one of the international bodies, bungled Samenya's case every possible way they could, driving her into hiding to escape scrutiny and humiliation. I'll say as an aside that um, approximately 18 months before Castor Semenya's case, there was a case of an Indian runner who, in fact, uh, was subject to similar humiliation and scrutiny with less press attention, but in fact, it was so devastating to her that she attempted to commit suicide. Um, And there are other cases stretching back further about the, the ways in which these policies have been deeply devastating to particular female athletes. Now, this case, reinvigorated debates about how to determine sex and whether universal sex testing is necessary in elite sports. The, the governing bodies came under intense pressure to improve handling of cases in the future, and they conducted an 18-month review that included quite a few bioethicists mm-hmm. in order to figure out what would be a good way forward. So I'm going to review a few aspects of the case and the history of sex testing as an additional demonstration of some of these principles that Professor Holloway advanced in her book. In particular, the notion of um, privacy essentially as a privilege of whiteness and maleness. Uh, I also think the example illustrates at least one way that this groundbreaking analysis can be extended to think about how uh, how... uh, additional ways that identity could be conceived and would, would um, bolster and give us a more robust uh, cultural bioethics. In August 2009, Castor Semenya won the women's 800-meter race at the Berlin World Championships by a fairly large margin, 2.45 seconds, and immediately there was this international frenzy of speculation about whether she was really a woman. Now, it's it's worth noting that the margin of her victory, um, while large, uh was not enough actually to give her the world record or even really close to the world record. She's not a world record holder. And in fact um her times in in no events enter the the really top echelon. And in no case do they ever put her into the realm of male athletes times. Mm -hmm. Uh, Although there are in many events some overlap between male and female times at the elite level in track. But it's interesting Castro Semenya's times don't put her there. So what was it that actually, that created this incredible attention? Um, Clearly, it was a combination of a pretty dramatic win and an appearance that a lot of people read as extremely masculine. So what was it about the masculinity of her appearance? Um, Part of it was very developed musculature, but it also involved short braids, that read as you know, not long hair. She didn't do the kinds of things that feminine athletes are under a huge amount of pressure to do, to counteract the fact that they're athletic women, strong women. There is especially the more media attention there is to sports, the more it's a commercial enterprise. Um, female athletes at that level are are really, really, really pressured to femme up, um, to wear long hair, to do things that in fact can get in the way of the physicality that they need in order to compete at a really intense level. So what what happened to her? Castor Semenya was subjected immediately after her win. Rather than even, she was even replaced on the dais. She was not allowed to receive her medal. Immediately afterwards, she was whisked off and subjected to a two-hour examination during which doctors put her legs in stirrups and photographed her genitalia. Afterwards, she sent distraught messages to friends and family. Test results purportedly indicated that Semenya had an intersex condition, a mix of male and female sex traits that left her without a uterus or ovaries and with undescended testes, producing androgens at three times the typical level for females. This is known as hyperandrogenism. But all of this is is based on speculation. This was purportedly, these things were leaks. Mm -hmm. There's no verification. This is the sort of thing that was circulating in, in the press. After these intensely intimate details about her body became a topic for public debate and scrutiny she went into hiding. She reportedly required trauma counseling in the wake of claims that these tests confirmed she was a hermaphrodite. Um, The IAAF banned her from competition during the investigation um, and eventually after 10 months of negotiation involving legal representatives and high profile mediators. Um, She was cleared for competition and her Berlin victory was allowed to stand, but without uh, any means for repairing the damage done to her privacy, her reputation, her standing in the sport, and so on. So her case is the latest in a string of sex verification scandals that go back decades. Since uh, women were first joined the Olympics, anxiety about women competitors' femininity has plagued the events. Only female athletes are subject to sex testing and only female athletes ever have been because concerns about fraud and fairness have centered purportedly on the possibility that males could masquerade as women and unfairly enter women's competition. And we could have, I think, a very interesting discussion about the likelihood of that, given the structure of masculinity and femininity and what kind of public glory would it mean for a man to actually win a women's event. There there are ways in which that story, speaking of stories, hasn't been properly spun out Mm -hmm. to test it. And in fact, who has been caught up in these, these tests? There have been no men caught in those tests ever. Who has been caught up have been women who are either intersex, meaning that they don't meet the conventional expectations about the way the multiple uh, traits of sex should align in bodies. The other people caught up and subjected to scrutiny and humiliation, whether or not they've eventually been ejected, are women who are either lesbian and therefore um, don't uh, exhibit the kinds of social connections and behaviors that would um, cement their femininity in terms of judges, uh, peers, etc. cetera, the media. Or women who are broadly gender nonconforming in ways that they j- just don't don't exhibit um, uh, the full trappings of Western femininity. What's fascinating is gender nonconforming needs to be extended in a very broad way here to women of color, almost in general. And the the, the issue is that there is in fact a very large preponderance of women of color. Who are caught up in these these drag nets of sex Mm -hmm. testing because of the ways in which um, questions can be raised on a very ad hoc basis and the ways in which femininity is always at this moment in our global media and consciousness femininity is coded as white so uh, blackness in particular per se um, diminishes perceived femininity on the global stage and brings women into this arena of testing. I'm sorry? I'm just a minute. Yeah, okay. Okay. So I'm not going to go into all of the the details of the ways in which different tests over the years have um, been used and employed. The idea was initially, actually, I I will just say that um, uh, initially women were uh, subjected to nude parades in front of the judges. The win in, I believe it was 1937, the 1936 games, uh, no, 1948, uh, the IAAF and IOC required female competitors to provide medical certificates of femininity. In the years in between 36 and 48, there were routine nude parades of all women athletes that were expected to perform at an elite level. This is a really good example of how simply, you know, just on that dimension of identity, of femaleness, Mm -hmm. that the expectation of privacy is very easily violated in a way that has not seemed plausible um, for male athletes. But further on, you can see that when they moved from that universal testing into targeted um, questioning and testing, that it was women who in fact didn't meet the criteria of femininity and had a variety of other, whether identities recognized as such in the book or we have to question what's the status of gender nonconformity broadly, Um, but that's who gets caught up. Um, So I want to to just say that although, you know, I'm doing some some work now on this and the concerns about the new policies center both on the accuracy of underlying scientific assumptions and the ethical implications of the policies. Um, I want to, right now, well, I'll point to one of each. Um, One of the uh, questionable scientific assumptions that might be surprising is that um, you have to ask what does, well, I don't think I explained well, that the new policy is that women who are questioned, anybody can raise a claim, anybody can question the eligibility of a female athlete and say, I believe this woman has hyperandrogenism. Her testosterone level makes her ineligible to compete fairly with other females. That claim can be raised as long as the medical directors believe that it's a credible and plausible claim. They then can initiate an investigation. Her uh, competition is suspended and it moves forward. And the premise, the underlying premise here, among other premises, is that you can see testosterone Mm -hmm. on someone. Um, And second, the premise is that testosterone is properly a male substance, that it doesn't belong in female bodies. A third assumption is that testosterone bears a predictable relationship to athletic ability. And interestingly, that's the one that people have the hardest time grasping, but it doesn't Mm -hmm. bear the kind of predictable relationship that you might expect. So um, more broadly, however, if you move past those, those scientific errors and you look at the process of the dragnet, the process of the questioning, um, you see exactly those uh, dimensions of identity that Professor Holloway has pointed to. Um, but it's also really important, I think, to notice um, an aspect of social structure that isn't neatly captured by identity and that has to do with uh, political economy more broadly mm-hmm. and the ways in which, and this brings me to a set of questions and ways in which I would, would want to extend the text around the issue of class in particular. Um, so if I return to those initial structuring questions, when Professor Holloway writes, quote, some corporeal feature is always and already vulnerable to public attention as an identity that stands in the place of private personhood. That points to certain mechanisms through which identity um, gets slotted in for personhood. But I think that it doesn't point to all of the mechanisms through which identity gets slotted in for personhood. And so one of the things that would be interesting would be to think about how can we move beyond the body and corporeality to um, to apply uh, a, an analysis that's as rigorous as what, as what we have here that would encompass those forms of social structure that travel alongside um, certainly race and to some extent gender but not always and can't be reduced to that, in particular class and sexuality, I think about. And the other thing that I would, I would ask in that regard is I'm curious as a method, I began to wonder whether fiction lends itself more readily to understanding some mechanisms of identity than to others. And I started thinking about the ways in which, uh, for example, there's an upcoming conference on. Um, um, It's called structural competency. I'm sure some of you guys have seen this conference. In medicine right now and in bioethics, you raised this in the book, I believe, the notion that um, cultural competency is supposed to be a way to move towards a better kind of ethical response to patients, to research subjects, and so on, to understand the assumptions and the life world, the narrative, it's much like narrative medicine, to understand the life world that people bring into practice. What cultural competency suggests as as an an addition or a corrective to that is that perhaps it's more useful to understand, instead of the narratives that patients bring in, the structures in which both patients and researchers Mm -hmm. and physicians operate very broadly. My, uh, you know, I'm not a a literary scholar, but my um, experience of literature and novels is that um, they, they don't have the kind of depth in that realm of illustration that they do in other ways of exploring identity. And I would love to hear the panel talk about that, and I would love to hear what You think of that. So, in essence, I wonder. uh, Well, I'll I'll, I'll simply leave it there. I've been, I've gone long enough. Sorry.
1: Thank you. Great. Well, thank you all for coming. Thank you to Elizabeth and um, the Barnard Center for Research and Women for having us and for sponsoring this conversation. It's um, it's quite an honor to be here. I'm honored, honored, honored to um, talk about the work of Carla Holloway, who I adore and whom I admire. And um, and it's uh, we should have lots of these about you and about your work. This should be the first of many. There's certainly. And I loved what, what Ferris phrasing was something about. Um, being a, uh, the collected works of Carla Holloway. There's so much that could be said. Um, I guess a couple other things. I mean, I wanted to say that uh, you know, I've only been here about uh, two and a half years and um, you come here and on paper people say like, oh my God, I can't believe you work with Saidia and Farrah and Beck and you know, we never see each other and Tina and so to actually be together in a room is like something that's barely occurred in three years and so Elizabeth, thank you for that as well. Um, so this uh, uh, invitation gave me an occasion to reread Carla's book. I read it when it first came out. She, was, she sent it to me, in fact, and I, was, I read it like as a rapacious fan. I read through it quickly. I couldn't wait to read it, and it gave me an occasion to sort of read it again with, with more deliberation, and I'll say some more about that. But I was also, in preparing my comments, so struck by contemporary um, issues that I had to weave these in as well, so. Um, while this occasion keeps some of us from being at Union Square this evening to protest the senseless murder of Trayvon Martin, Professor Carla Holloway's powerful book is at its core about the very issues brought to light by this criminal incident. Mocking the absurdity of the claim that a sweatshirt could justify a fatal trigger finger, the Million Hoodie March also underscores the fact that what is at stake is far more than a sartorial matter. Taking Holloway's courageous lead in her book, Private Bodies, Public Texts, what may appear to be senseless takes on a socio-historical logic, even as it defies all reason. Mm -hmm drawing on deft interdisciplinary analysis. And that phrase doesn't even begin to capture what Carla does in this book. I mean, Carla is, um, you know, I use the term master lightly because it's a complicated (laughs) (laughs) word, but she is a master of bioethics, of the literature on science, and not just genomic science. Lots of, you know, bodies of literature on the science, which are distinct literatures. Um, Of course, she's a, a genius at literary analysis. Um, and now also the law. I mean, it's extraordinary what she's able to weave together seamlessly and seemingly effortlessly in this book, and uh, it's really impressive. So drawing on deft interdisciplinary analysis, Professor Holloway shines a light on awareness of our countries, which uh, stratified recognition of personhood, to borrow her words. And she reminds us that, quote, social narratives adhere to certain bodies. In the case of Trayvon Martin, the narrative was one of suspicion. The teenager was guilty on arrival, a menace to a society. Narratives such as these that adhere to certain bodies, as Carla, Carla reminds us, also implicate bioethics. For as she suggests, quote, social judgments and social systems are critical dimensions of science and medicine. And so floating in the cauldron of suspicion around the gone all too soon Trayvon Martin is the juridical and scientific instructions of this teenager as a born criminal. A born criminal such that his doe eyes, slight stature, and snacks were imperceptible to the vigilante who hunted him down and killed him. Unfathomable to this murderer was the idea that Trayvon was somebody's baby. He was merely a born criminal. Trayvon was murdered in a gated community, the ultimate symbol of privacy tied to property in American society. But as Professor Holloway makes clear, regardless of who is beyond the gates or who is propertied, Those who once once deemed property itself can never have privacy. Moreover, blacks and women are marked as, quote, available for, quote, intimate violations, including the cessation of life itself. The idea of the born criminal has also justified a long history of crimes against humanity from the refusal of the private sphere and Carla's um, work for some to the catalog uh, likely incomplete of medical experimental abuse meted out Uh, to men and women of African descent in this country for centuries that Harriet Washington has called medical apartheid. Holloway shows us that when these lives were constituted as public texts, it was their identities that were made public. Uh, Quote identities and people have sort of talked about the way that that Carla uh, regards identity as something distinctive. Through the force of social constructs and historical patterns using her words rather than their personhood uh, which was made invisible. Um, it is the reduction of persons to identities in Holloway's framing that serves as a vehicle for invasions of privacy for what she calls spectacularity and what she also calls hyperpublic notice. Holloway uh, returns us to one of the most symbolically loaded of our narratives about race, medicine, and gender in this book. She revisits the infamous Tuskegee syphilis study. The New York Times' disclosure of the study in 1972, uh, uh, you know, um, alerted us to this four decades long experiment in which close to 400 African-American men were left untreated for syphilis so that researchers could observe its ravages on the human body. And notably, the 40th anniversary of this revelation is this July, so there'll be a lot of conversation about that and hopefully also about your magnificent book. Holloway describes this controversy as, quote, the urtex uh, for abuse in clinical trials. Um, As I have written about in my recent work, the Tuskegee revelation, however, merely punctuated what black communities had long known and felt, right? From, uh, it became a codification of personal experience, of apocrypha, and of nightmares for black families across the US. Um, Yet, and in keeping Trayvon Martin in mind, as I hope we'll do in our conversation, uh, there is, quoting Holloway, a quote, narrative of sexuality, race, and gender that is rehearsed each time that Tuskegee and syphilis are mentioned in the same sentence, close quote. This is partly why Tuskegee persists as our main narrative about biomedical abuse, Uh, I think Carla argues very persuasively. Um, Yet, of course, the subtext is also about, um, in Holloway's theoretics, identity, and about how it can come to take the place of human suffering, of loving relationships, I'm thinking here of the infected men um, and and children, uh, women and children of these men in the Tuskegee experiment, and how uh, it can numb empathy. Holloway notes that black male sexual identity, um, again using her um, use of identity, um, is what drives part of our our obsession um, uh, with the Tuskegee experiment. And I think it's also notable um, to think about this obsession with black male sexual identity with regard to the recent comparisons between the murdered teenager who was murdered during Black History Month last month um, and also the the comparison of him with Emmett Till. Um, that have reminded us that there is a sort of specter of race and uh, sexuality haunting um, this, this incident. Um, for example, if it's true that Trayvon Martin's killer used the phrase fucking coons, he might also be understood to have said fucking coons, literally hypercopulation, hypercopulating black men from Trayvon to Tuskegee. Carlo's work alerts us to, to the schizophrenia of the Human Genome Project, The way in which we are both in this project alike and different, and what she calls the function creep of genetic technologies as they move from the clinical bench to the ancestral, ancestry projects to the forensic work. In all of these sites, Carla writes, blood ties are revived, quote, in the urge to use DNA knowledge. She alerts us to the obvious essentialism of race and of kinship, of um, and particularly to the use of family as a medical resource that, injusti- that justifies invasions of privacy, so that health becomes an imperative um, that justifies uh, essentialist and heteronormative ideas about the family and about biology. So, you know, you can constitute your family in any way you like, but if you want to know about your real family, then you need to go back to the bio family. Um, but she shows at the same time, and I think this is what. Is I think underplayed in your book to some regard that uh, you know these narratives about essentialism, the essentialism of race and ethnicity, and in some regard kinship, um, also operate within this sort of logics about privacy, mm-hmm. um, and I, this is what mm-hmm. I think is so is, is is truly sort of new in our conversations about about genomics and, and race. Um, so you you alert us to the way that genetic data moves us from one lab to another and the ether of the World Wide Web, how it moves there from, you know, from a clinical setting to a forensic database through an email, through a USB drive, and the like. And as I said, this is a particularly refreshing view of the current ways in which issues of social identity and genetic science have um, been taken up, but not in ways that really bring to bear this, this important issue of privacy. So, and, and yet it raises a few questions, I think, to close out. This is also the one chapter in which Um, there are fewer testimonies and fewer kind of literary stories, right? Mm -hmm. And so that the the sort of narrative, such that you will in this chapter, are that the scientists speak Uh, and the ethicists speak and the people don't speak. And so I think this is important for the issue of privacy that you're raising in this chapter um, because... There is, I'm I'm thinking of um, this great essay from about a decade ago in social text by Tiziana Terranova called Free Labor. There is a kind of, in addition to a health imperative, an imperative for individuals to be involved um, in the sort of post genomic era in particular sorts of ways. So, going back to the sites that you talk about, you know, one is left to wonder about what you might say about the fact that privacy is being freely released, is being willingly yielded persons when they participate in, for example, the social media um, facet of the 23andMe project, when they participate in studies that link genetic information and their genealogical profiles, and in some extreme cases, when people literally upload their entire genomic information um, to the web to be freely used in the spirit of kind of open source politics and a few other questions and I'll wrap up. Um, I wanted to, Carla writes a little bit about the Henrietta Lacks case and about um, um, the people, the, the way it's been sort of addressed. Um, and I thought one interesting thing, I had to go to the footnotes, of course. So you have this fantastic, I don't know this essay, this fantastic footnote about this Trudier Harris article called The Disease uh, The disease Called Strength. Oh. And so she's talking about Henrietta Lacks and about the, the, how, the way in which this one the rendering of the Gila cells went from being considered sort of angelic and um, and uh, altruistic because they were sort of saving humanity to this rendering of the cells when they came to it contaminate other cell lines and sort of ruin project ruin projects as uh, you know the this sort of strong black woman stereotype thing gets taken up in the descriptive of the cells and so then it led me to think like about um, are the work of Black feminists around the kind of four tropes of you know of 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 Black womanhood and like what if Trier Harris and what if, if if Henrietta Lacks opens up another place for another type of archetype slash stereotype for us right that mm-hmm. takes into consideration the corporeal um, uh, takes in consideration. Um, you know bodies that have low value bodies that are dispensable value bodies that are available I mean I think that runs all the way through mm-hmm. you know literature and history about black women's bodies in particular from Sally Hemings to I was thinking about um, the photographs that idea has been working on so these you know young women are the Agassiz photographs that are kind of available in this way this kind of sense of availability of black femininity or black woman um, and thinking also about the work of a student of mine who's working on the women who were experimented on by Marion Sims, um, so that there's there's something here um, I think that we could yeah. sort of really draw out that you lead us to um, that would be worth hearing, wondering what you think about that. Um, another question I guess about fiction and fact, um, as other people have suggested, you argue that fiction provides a sort of six, a sense of complexity and insight, um, but. What your book suggests to us, and particularly with the last vignette about Katrina, is that so does real life, right? Mm-hmm. And so I kind of wanted to, to hear you talk about that. I mean, and, and is the problem... Is the issue about genre? So is it about the case study versus the literary, to go back a bit to some of ideas, um, uh, observations, or is it about something else? I mean, is it about genre or is it about epistemology or are those things what are you know what's the difference between those two things because you write so powerfully and effectively about real-life situations that aren't literary that I don't know maybe I guess it's arguable whether or not they're literary um, uh, last question is about at some at one point you say that that accuracy is important for medicine and the law and you understand that that the that, that accuracy is necessary but I kind of wondered about and I think Beck was touching on this a little bit too about don't we need accuracy for social justice, right? I mean, aren't there things that are true and not true, that are right and not right? Um, and that? I your eyes at me. So I got, you know, like, I don't, okay, okay, okay. So, but it's really about my larger desire for wanting to, to, to hear more about, you know, now that we know how to do this, now how we know how to read better, right? Like, what do we do with this? And what does that mean for things like, you know, I don't know, medicine and the outcomes. I'm going to hang out with sociologists. Give me a break, Carla. (laughs) Okay, to wrap up. So, Harriet Washington and Professor Holloway write about a case here at Columbia, um, at the University, at Columbia University, at the Lowenstein Center for the Study and Prevention of Childhood Disruptive Disorders, in which more than 30 boys were enrolled in a study linking violence and genetics. All of the boys were described as black Dominicans or black and Hispanic from Washington Heights. And as Carla beautifully writes, uh, they were doubly vulnerable because not only were they enrolled in this study and the issue of informed consent is questionable, Um, but they were also the siblings of brothers who had had trouble with the law. So the implication was that these were born criminals, right? That they were sort of the brother, the siblings of criminal families. Um, So the stereotypic and double vulnerability of these boys is underscored by Holloway as a variable of standard bioethics and as a subject for her own very influential and I think will be very influential cultural bioethics. Um, But I just want to to say to close that on February 26, Trayvon Martin was similarly doubly vulnerable Linked in the racist imagination by conjectured blood ties to spectral-born criminals uh, in other pl- parts of Florida. Thanks.
0: So, after so many provocative <laughs> responses, <laughs> I'm going to ask you to, to comment. I want to leave some room for some space for conversation, and so I'm going to ask you to comment for maybe ten minutes, and okay. then open it up to the larger.
2: Um, and watch me on time. I will watch will you? You. <laughs> thank you. Matter of fact, call it early if you like.. <laughs> you know, because, um, let me just first say thank you so much for the invitation and for this sisterhood circle here. Um, you don't know, or I can't express enough of how embraced and wonderful this is, not only as an academic, but as a person, we need <laughs> this kind of embrace. And not only do I have it here, but I have my three nieces here in the front row, Chisara, Chinyure, and Kalechi, who are here to give Aunt Carla a boost. And they always, always do. So thank you, girls, ladies, for coming. Um, you know, I, I still just think about asking them, which one are you? you? know, Because as they were growing up, I interchange them. And they are my wonderful nieces. Um, The other thing I want to say is what has really sort of set me, um, kept me on an edge during this conversation is, did I write that? You wrote that? (laughs) And the truth is, um, I actually think I lost a fellowship that I applied for in writing this book, because I kept shifting the title in the fellowship application, sometimes it was public bodies, private text; sometimes, in the same, it was private bodies, public text. And in my own head, I kept getting this mixed up. And I think that that is probably um, a necessary admission because of the slipperiness. Of these words, and whether or not we are talking about something desired and wanted, such as privacy, or something that is um, not available and not desirable, such as privacy. And interestingly enough, when I came in today, I'm passing um, the New York Academy of Medicine where Marion Sims's statue, Marion Sims was. Um, famous not only for his um, research on enslaved women but on something that makes most women I know one across their legs the sims speculum that we undergo in certain examinations. Um, so I dislike him for you know, <laughs> several reasons. So I'm passing by the statue thinking about the conversation people have today and enjoying deeply how you brought together such an interdisciplinary panel and yet our work intersects in ways that I think makes it intelligible to you why I'm going to so many sources for information. So just as things occur to me and just especially Alondra because I was smiling because you were talking about the accuracy we were after. Um, And I do remember, since it was not that long ago anyway, my first day in law school where someone. Um, my contracts professor said, how many of you think the law is about justice? I was smart enough not to raise my hand. <laughs> Actually, I think I was old enough <laughs> to raise my hand. But other folks in the room, my classmates were raising their hand. Yeah, the law is all about finding truth, accuracy, and justice. When I know it's really about efficiency and what kind of evidence will determine the truth that we will use, not necessarily the truth, you know, some ultimate truth out there. So, and I think that's also true with literature, because, as you said, Cydia, um, what did I want to use? How did I want to use literature? The truth is, I wrote this book because I was irritated, <laughs> um, which is a state that I stay in a whole lot these days. Um, but I'm maybe not, uh, I'm not you know interminably irritable because I was at a funeral my sister-in-law died and I was at her funeral two weeks ago and one of what must be a grand grandniece came up to me and was holding my hand and said why are you so friendly and I said well, "You know, why not she said because you're old and old people aren't friendly you know they're irritable and I said oh well, I guess I am usually irritable but I was being nice on that day So nice that I invited the whole family over for Thanksgiving. What was I thinking? There'd be 30 people coming to the house for Thanksgiving. I will need your help, um, girls. Uh, But the idea of wanting to speak back to bioethicists, especially, was my interest because I was really irritated with the way the word story was getting interpolated in the field so that if a doctor came up to a patient and said, I've got five minutes, tell me your story, and left, you know, or your history, you know, and the patient's history was standing in for sufficient information to determine not only a course of treatment, but what I might share about this person, what I need to know that's important. And so in a lot of ways, I think the perspective shifted for me in this book, where my audience, in a sense, the audience in my head was the people I was mad at kept using story in stories in ways that weren't complicated and I wanted to complicate it back up and said read a real story here's a novel for you you know much too long to put on a patient's chart but something that would at least suggest the kinds of complications that saidia you so clearly indicated were necessary for me to keep in mind when you asked how does the language of law and science shape the literary, if at all, I'm thinking that the language is out there being shaped without any cognizance of or any appreciation for its potential complexity. And so I want us to always acknowledge that we're reshaping the truths or the science or the accuracies to fit a particular purpose. Um, Matter of fact, the project I'm working on now, and it's interesting, I didn't know this book was about identity, but I guess you have I guess it really is. One of of the things that I'm working on now in the book that I'm calling Legal Fictions is um, is the interdependence, at least in the US Constitution of race, of literature and law. And that the reason races will continue to exist in the spectacle of U.S. Um, and that's why I'm emailing you about biosocialities because I really want to figure out and use this term in a way that sort of understands that the law is always configuring us as raced. Because my solution to any harm in my regarding my personhood through the law is to declare myself as a woman or whether or not Trayvon's killing is as a hate crime to determine him as a black child will give him, um, his family, a route towards resolution that is at least legally visible. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's the reproductive
5: logic. Yeah,
2: yeah. I, I, I think so. And so I think that these are... Falling on top of each other now, in terms of isn't this interesting? The reason, and one of, so the book that I'm working on now is really addressed to folks in literature that think um, African American literature is at an end. And I think it really can't be as long as African Americans are continually being constituted by law and noticed legally. And necessarily so. I'm not ready to let society just sit back and say, we're all. Post-racial now, uh, it just hurts me to say that phrase. Um, but it's out there because that's our desire. But at the same time, we can only be post-racial because of you know 1964 s- s- civil rights legislation that declares race in a certain configuration, and also because of affirmative action rulings that are going to be reconfigured once again in the contemporary court. Um, but the other way I sort of wanted to begin was just to say the name Sandra Fluke along with Trayvon Martin. I see these as contingent conversations. She and I have been in a sort of email conversation about um, mine in no way similar to hers about being targeted by Rush Limbaugh and at what place Limbaugh goes to in the targeting. I think the only person who heard Limbaugh talk about me was my great uncle. Warren, um, who called <laughs> me and said, Baby doll, what's going on down there? This is during the Duke Lacrosse uh-huh. events. Um, and my name was in his mouth. And so when you said, you know, my tongue is in my friend's mouth, yeah. it was really interesting for me to think about how narratives get um, spaced and uh, placed in certain mouths. That change the whole intent, and so when I'm saying I'm writing to bioethicists or I'm writing to literature scholars, that perspective, in a sense, does um, does sort of shape what the project is, but also I think allows for or you know results in certain lacuna or or gaps, um, and I think that this um, what what Farah. What talked about is the implications of identity for social justice is what pushes most of this for me. Because although I think justice justice is something that is going to be whatever convenience there is at any particular time, I was talking to my niece earlier about um, Trayvon's family I think will have perhaps some potential for resolution in civil courts rather than in criminal. Um, but that's only if you can go after where the big money lies. And perhaps with the neighborhood association or whatever regulatory body is attached to that, what's going to happen in city. a criminal case or the city, um, who allows the associations to prosper. And so it's interesting you know, how we go about um, social justice is really going through a system that is going to separate us from either our socialities or from a justice, which is that ideal that we all have. Um, Beck, thank you for bringing up the case of um, Castor Simania. I was actually in a conversation last year about this where one of my colleagues at Duke Law, who's actually an Olympics athlete, said, so, well, there." there's got to be one of two answers. She's either a male or a female. I mean, that's it. And the former chair of Women's Studies and I just kind of looked at each other. <laughs> you know, so what do we do? But if if our laws are only constituted for certain kinds of solutions, and I was thinking of Ms. Samanya when you were talking about the spectacularity of her body um, alongside um, Sarji Bartman, Sarge Bartman exactly. or the hot top Venus Sarah right. Bartman, whose right. body was also pulled apart, um, m- made microscopic material, put on display. And how interesting, and so right. that's why this history is so important to me, to remember, to remind us to link these contemporary bodies to other bodies oh. whose bodies are available for a certain kind of discourse. So um, I think that there are so many Potential. I see more openings for this book than I see it closed for me. I deeply appreciate the ways in which you've all thought it, um, thought about it with such um, generous consideration and regard. And the works of Carla Holloway are just going to s- sort of stay in my head in a way. It's time for it to be over, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. um, but so. You know, I, you know, just thinking about the public arena of sports, the kinds of things about um, the literary meanings of language that Farah was talking about or literature's models of autonomy, I actually think um, this idea, literature might present models of autonomy if we are able to imagine them within. So I think there's always this exchange between reader and text that emerge as something that the writer might not have intended and that the reader did not know. So autonomy, because it's one of those principles terms of bioethics, is particularly intriguing to me. And I'm still working a lot of it through. I do want to say, though, um, just to conclude and to sort of open things up, that um, there are ways in which Trayvon Martin's story is too familiar Um, and although the individuals body here is certainly at issue also at issue are these gun laws in 16 states that have for whatever reasons what we could probably enumerate them easily here allowed um, people to feel to imagine themselves threatened enough so that we would reverse the notion of threat to perception rather than actual. And I think that's a very real social process that depends on um, an imagined, an, imagine, an easily imaginable body as a threat. Um, and those are, I think, um, private bodies. Public text says they are women, and they are bodies that are not white or heterosexual or male.
0: We have about a half an hour to have a conversation, so because we have talked quite a lot, I wanna begin by asking if there are questions from the audience.
6: Uh, My question is for um, Dr. Holloway and- You just say
0: Aunt Aunt (laughs) Carla
6: And also, um, I'm sorry, at the end, Professor, Professor Nelson. Nelson. Professor Nelson, about um, since you both brought up the Trayvon Martin case, could you talk a little bit about the way that the fact that Zimmerman is apparently Hispanic is being leveraged, and how there's now a confusion between the terms Hispanic and white, as if they're mutually exclusive, which I wasn't aware was an issue for most of America. Maybe it's because I live, you know, in Washington Heights, or I don't know. But I, I didn't know that we didn't know that there were white Hispanics and black Hispanics. And is this really something that people are just using now, do you think, to kind of say, oh, well, he can't be racist and confuse the situation? Or is this a genuine confusion? Because to me, it kind of seems like we're redefining hmm. race as it's convenient for this particular moment. But you
1: go first. <laughs> Thanks, Carla. Um, <laughs> I think actually the, the issue around Zimmerman's ethnicity has come up a lot, particularly in cases in New York City, which I'm most familiar with. So if I, if Sean Bell, you would call, some of the, mm-hmm. the officers that were involved in that were Latino and perhaps even African American, and he was African American. And so um, it, it comes up because, you know, increasingly we're in a society in which um, to be sort of sexist or racist, you know, people have made it... Um, an individual sort of fault or, or sin or um, when in fact, you know, what, what these cases prove beautifully actually are long arguments about institutional racism. So whether or not he's a black Hispanic or a white Hispanic, I mean, you know, he's a racist. And um, it happened because of a kind of a racist imagination uh, about, uh, you know, about black uh, boys and, and men. So um, that's about,
2: Yeah, yeah I, I think I agree. The- I think what this attempts to do is to replace the real situation with with a pretend argument that racism depends on what you only you can only be racist if you are white um, or you can okay. only be sexist if you are male like? uh, you know, Well, certainly you know you know those those are socially constructive and socially convenient as you pointed out terms but the idea of the perpetration of a harm based on who you are is the issue, not who the person is who, um, who is the victimizer here. So I don't care what identity um, uh, Zimmerman is or was. I care about what motivated his harm to this child. Um, and that 's when we can call something racist or a hate crime or whatever. so anybody who tries to tell you, "Oh but these are black policemen or you know they are Hispanic or Latino or whatever they 're Pushing you away from the real point, and you should just tell them to hush. You know, that's what you're. Oh, you know, Carlos, <laughs> Yeah, um, just that—that's not the argument. Um, that I don't agree with your premise here. Your premise is suggesting that that matters. It doesn't matter. The harm matters.
5: Can I quickly add something about the the fact in in your book? What I love, love, love the way that you lay out predictable ethical failures. And I think just as this was predictable within a socio historical mm-hmm. logic, although not rational or reasonable, the responses are also predictable and are as yeah, patterned totally. as oh, yeah. the event itself. Exactly. And this just mm-hmm. just exactly. illustrates that. And it's a it's a predictable containment strategy, yeah. it's a predictable um, uh, deployed misunderstanding of the dynamics.
0: But I also felt, felt like, I mean, that was one of the things that I felt was so powerful about the the notion of bioethics that you're, that you're trying to get us to think about. In that notion of predictable failures, what you focus on is multiplicity and intentionality, yeah. right? Yeah. And so it's a, the predictability is about the fact that it must be repeated in order to become mm-hmm. a norm that we are so desensitized to, mm-hmm. right, that mm-hmm. it can repeat itself over and over again. Mm-hmm. And that what you're pr- pointing out, Beck, is that that multiplicity comes not only in that moment when bodies become identities that are no longer persons, mm-hmm. right, do no longer have humanity, yeah. but also in that reaction. Of what the our our capacity to respond is so narrowed, right? That we begin repeat reproducing the very categories that uh, that reduced um, a body to an identity without humanity. The, the
2: Hurricane Katrina victims are a perfect example of this. Long past the time when they should have stopped being victims and been um, people we are helping, we rename them as refugees. Um, we Imagine um, a whole host of events going on in the, um, the Superdome um, that did not happen. Um, we rescue people from some hospitals and not others. And we could predict those. You know, matter of fact, the people in the hospitals said, oh, I knew that the helicopter, the army, was going to rescue people from the um, private hospitals. But we here at Charity, or, or even at Memorial, which was the city hospital, were going to be last on the list. Uh, Mm -hmm. and that bioethics seems to you know scoot over these as if every case is new and different Mm -hmm. is
0: troublesome to me. Mm -hmm. I also wanted to if I I get this right as a moderator (laughs) to to go back to uh, Saidia's question um, about the literary which sort of dovetailed so nicely with um, one of Alondra's final questions about um, when you're proposing for us to mobilize and interrogate the literary as a route to think differently about the responsibilities of bioethics. Um, One of the points that that Alondra made was, you you described it in terms of your desire to also think about what are the implications of writing the real, right? And writing the statistic or writing science. Um, That I'm wondering if you would say a little bit more about uh, the political uses of narrative in terms of what the ways in which you think it's necessary to write and not just to read, right? Because you're mobilizing both the stories that people write Mm -hmm. or the stories Mm -hmm. that people tell. Mm -hmm. You're also mobilizing fictional narratives, right? So it sounds like what you're also asking of us is a different kind of writing practice. Um, and, and what does that have to do with the literary, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Because I understand the way in which you're using the literary, but what are you asking those who are trying to engage the bioethical, right, by way of certain kinds of attention to narrative? What are you asking us to do?
2: Well, there, there's the, the practical and the impractical answer to your question. Mm-hmm. Practically, I don't imagine that there will be many except those students who are in my classes. Who are now reading bioethics, who are reading medicine, law, and literature to go to literature for solutions. Um, I tell my bioethics and lit class I just want you to remember when you become doctors that it's more complicated. Um, So it's not as if I want their reading habit and practice to change, I want their thinking to change about how. Widely and wildly, because I use science fiction in this book. I mean, um, I, I use something about a creature with eight arms. You know, um, Octavia Butler's *Owncali*. So, you know, and you know, there's no way. I really think somebody's going to take this story and say, "No, as Octavia <laughs> Butler would have thought about it." I think this is what I'm going to do. But if they if they let their imagination stop, if ethicists if um, people who do law, medical science, people who do genomics and and are so enamored with the categories of race um, stop their thinking with those easily available and facile categories, Um, then I think the potential for finding out something new and different about ourselves or our writing will end there. So what I want for people, this group of people to do is see that the imagination is a route to more and better and deeper thinking about the various uh, about the very real problems that they are facing, that one is facing in medicine or in you know. So what are we going to do with George Zimmerman? You know, how many ways can we think about an alternative? Uh-uh. <laughs> how many ways in which we can think about an alternative for this? Um, need not stop um, with criminal law procedures. Mm -hmm. So certainly there are, I think what literature does in its complexity and in its open-endedness is to suggest that normal people, which are literary people to me, don't stop imagining when there is a solution available. And if we stop, we do so because our discipline requires, I mean, a judge has got to say, okay, I got to come down one way or the other, but that doesn't mean the other way is, you know, um, not reasonable or not um, as good as, or not, it just means I have an efficient, a problem here I have to have a solution to. So I want to make it, I want to make the world as complicated as literature is. Um, there's an essay, uh, one of the ways I'm getting out my irritation these days is to tweet. Um, I've seen all the birds in the back thing, which are remind me, but because my daughter reads my tweets, I have to take a lot of them back as soon as I tweet them, you know, I get it out there and then delete it really quickly. Um, but one of the things I tweeted some time back was um, 10 words that we think come from science fiction, but really... come from science, but really come from science fiction. I think it's easily findable on the web. You'd be surprised to see the kind of language we use today, which was someone's imagination yesterday. Just imagination. But we use it today as if it's rigorous, real, stable, and um, fixable. It's not.
3: I would say, Carla, that that was the other work that Your turning to the literary did for me was to suggest that we be attentive to the histories and meanings embedded in words and that um, at the level of the literary there's a conscious attention to that that perhaps does not exist in some of these other discourses and I especially like the way you went back and forth with yourself and the physician who asked you why do you say a body (laughs) versus the patient and and what that you know what what he thought he meant by calling something Mm -hmm. a patient and not a body and what body meant to you versus patient or even what a body versus the B-body. body I does right. so that. I mean I, that's that's also what I thought that for you the liter- literary did it
2: yeah. did um, it almost enabled me to have all of myself and to have all of us present and that it would be all right <laughs> don't take that Emma's being filmed but, you know, we're all here <laughs> um, but In contradiction with each other I think at one point in the book I I mentioned um, Whitman do I contradict myself very well I contradict myself I am large I contain multitudes I begin all my classes with that and say it's Walt Whitman and here you have Carla Holloway quoting Walt Whitman so it's okay if two weeks later you say but you said And then I go to the Walt Whitman, do I contradict myself? And so I'm very intelligent doing so. But what I really mean is, I just want to incorporate the complexities without one having to be the final answer. And I think that, as a writer and reader um, for my literary side of the table, is um, what I think gives me the possibility of actually holding these fields very different fields in conversation with each other. So the literary is really the grounding for me to do these sort of excavations into science, law, and medicine, because that is such expansive and expanding ground. It didn't work for me much in law school, (laughs) not just, you know, (laughs) but.
0: Can you recommend a book that has both structural imagination and individual complexity?
2: Tony Morrison's beloved um, James Joyce's Ulysses. I, I would add that this
5: book this book gives us vignettes that do that in a way that that's what's so beautiful about the way the vignettes are used. And I think about how the um, you know small pieces of story and of biography, whether they're from fictions or from the. Actress, for example, in, in Katrina, or the cases I was over and over. I'm not going to remember her name, but the case um, of the marriage annulment that was. Oh, um, the, Rhinelander. the Rhinelander. Yeah, the Rhinelander case. The ways in which um, the narrative um, forces attention to the um, to the processes that particular characters are subjected to and not other characters. And maybe, I mean, I think that what's great is, as a great literature teacher, you take a vignette that somebody else might read without understanding the structural implications of that vignette. And what you do is guide the reader to say, this is is why this vignette is about structure. This is why the, the drama, the courtroom drama of the way that she had to expose her body, mm-hmm. for example, is precisely about a particular history of black women's physical availability and, and so forth. And so this, you know, I think partly it's about um, learning reading practices where you can recognize or to be, to be taught and guided to recognize the structural content. In that that deep story
2: shared yeah. across fields. Um, how many of you know this Rhinelander case? It was in New York City in 1924. I still think it's the most, one of the most stunning legal cases that I've read. Um, it was a case of um, contractual fraud, marriage fraud. Um, Rhinelander was a rich, white, wealthy man, and he married Alice Jones, um, who whom he said he did not know at the time was colored. And during the course of their trial, um, her attorney had her disrobe in the courtroom to prove that she was indeed colored and that he should have known. Because they also found uh, put into um, evidence all of their letters to each other from the hotel room. And I often ask my students, so what was he looking for that wasn't available in the arms and legs and face? Anybody? Better... No, they didn't. Oh, they just did two ways. They didn't do pubic hair, which right. when, you know was the, the, the areola, the nipple, because the presumption was that um, a colored girl would have brown or dark um, areola. <laughs> I, I'm just saying this was a presumption. 1924. Um, when my um, research assistant, I was working on this book at the Du Bois Institute. Um, said that she wanted to go out and do a research project to find out how many of her fellow classmates thought that was true this is during the middle of the duke lacrosse stuff i said please all i need is carla holloway's name attached to a research project on nipples you know <laughs> let's just stop right here but um i still think where is the movie about this this mm-hmm. is just such a stunning case and the other stunning thing is she won her case um, because my, my interpretation is, is more, it was more important for New York State to say, yes, a reasonable white man could discern which, um, which girl was, was colored and who was not. This was an unreasonable white man. He was, and he was, um, con, he was um, displayed as a foolish boy who had a lisp so obviously, you know, he couldn't tell skin colors. So they had to sort of dehumanize, de-whitenize him in order to make her story true. And this poor um, immigrant girl won a case over this millionaire. Um, uh, well, her parents were from England. Her mother, uh, her father described himself as I'm British. He was from the British West Indies. He said, what do you mean, what race am I? I'm British. <laughs> Yeah, you know, So it just depends on perspective. Her mother was a white English woman. He was a West Indian British man. So that was her ethnic background.
3: Well, Carl, I think that, that story, in some ways, proves what Alondra, I mean, supports one of Alondra's points in that the way you retell it in the book and the, the case itself is far more compelling than the way I've, I mean, think about the way it's right. mentioned as a throwaway in oh. Nella Larson's passing. <laughs> uh, like, yeah. It's just mentioned like, oh, there's the there Rhinelander the case. Right? And then you have the to case. go look it up. Mm-hmm. And fiction doesn't do it the kind right. of justice yeah. that the case itself does and that you were telling. It's the a case stunning does. case.
2: Yeah. And the fact that it all comes down to the contract of marriage. Yeah. And for me, thinking now about marriage being you know, eventually headed to the Supreme Court, is, is it going to be as a contract issue, which everybody has the right to, or is it going to be narrowed to some other pretend legal question that keeps us out of the contract right. arena? Um, it's a fun case.
6: I wanted to just talk a little bit about you know, the recent, I think, fairly recent talk about the women in North Carolina who were basically, you know... Sterilized? Sterilized. Is this race? Is this class? Is this... Illiteracy. I mean, this is only yeah, right. So I want to even think about because I read the New York Times spin on these. and then I would be interested. How did it read in the court? How did? How did? What were they? What were they? What was the discussion about? And you know, it's the frustrating thing. Is like, why is this happening again and again and again and again?
2: Actually, it's not in the court. It's in the legislature. Okay.
6: Is that
2: the county thing or the um, no, it's a matter of reparations. And so um, just in the last week, Governor Perdue, um, our outgoing Democratic governor, because she's not going to run for a second term, has asked for more victims of sterilization to please come forward. I'll tell you how this bothers me. Um, Because reparations, yes. You know, a problem with what happened to North Carolina sterilized more women who were um, for reasons of class, who were poor, for diseases like epilepsy, um, for having too many children, for you know, however they could characterize it, than any other state in the union. Um, sometime in the last six months, some of the women have testified before the legislative committee that's been um, assigned to think about reparations, and if so, how much. What bothers me is that we need their private their testimony to talk about what happened to them in order to do the right thing for them. I mean, I know what sterilization is. You know, um, why do we need to see the. And, and, but I also have to say, and, and there are women who want to stand up and t- have their stories heard. So I can't stand in the place of the victims of this heinous act. But I think it's socially interesting that the only way we can get the money up from the $20,000 figure that has been proposed to the $50,000 figure is to have more women crying in public Mm -hmm. saying what was done. Mm -hmm. Y'all know what was done. Give them the damn money. (laughs) That's that's where I am now with it. But it stands in distinction to what some of the women who have been harmed feel they want to do. So
1: I would just add, I mean, it's not I guess, uh, I, I don't know, it's not still going on. I mean, they stopped in the 70s, the sterilization, so it's kind come- mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it, it, this particular government program, I mean, you know, I'll give them that. <laughs> you know, poor women are getting sterilized, I'm sure, um, but contiguously. I guess what I think is particularly interesting about the North Carolina case is that you know over the four plus decades that it goes on it it at, after the sort of civil rights movement as you get into the 60s and 70s that the percentage of black women increases in the sterilization because previously i think the majority was white women in the mm-hmm. 40s and 50s Carl, mm-hmm. is that right and then it shifted and then it shifts right and so right they, at like, the civil rights right right, right. and so access to care, I, guess. Um, pa- I think partly access to care but i think other forms of social control after jim crow is uh, you know not totally dismantled but delegitimized and, and, you know, made illegal as a system of social control.
0: We are just about at the end of our time, so I'm going to thank all of the panelists and Carla for this conversation.